Okay, so far. The story so far. <laughs> Where have we got to? Well, I've got to a position um, with Nagarjuna. I'm not going to reiterate all the stuff I went into <coughs> in the previous talk this week. We got into a position where no position is a good position. No view is a good view. All of them, in some ways, are going to lead us into blind alleys. But the danger with Nagarjuna's view, or it was felt the danger with Nagarjuna's view in his own period, was that it ended up appearing like the world didn't exist at all. It was equated by many Buddhist thinkers at the time as being nihilistic. Stripping away the world, stripping away meaning in the world. Now hopefully from the explanation I gave you the previous night, you will see that is not the case. The Scylla and Charybdis that all Buddhists thought over its two and a half thousand years has tried to steer away between is obviously these perils of eternalism and the perils of nihilism. And actually if you look at its history, even look at your own tendency, even um, in relationship to thinking about your practice and thinking about what's going on, there tends to be this movement to either one or the other polarities. You drift to one or other side. Whereas actually the Buddha is saying, and this is right, he calls it Majjhimaga, a middle path, a middle way between those two extremisms. So basically what this history has said, and I think again, trying to put it in practical terms, to look at what we are actually doing when we're trying to think and reflect perhaps on our practice, on the what's going on, is this tendency to veer to one or the other of the polarities. The tendency that is most specific, and this goes right back to the time of the Buddha, there's something called the Brahmajala Sutta, which is the opening sort of, really easy to find, it's the opening sort of the Divya Nikaya in the, in the Long Discourses of the Buddha. The Buddha lists out 62 philosophies that were around in his time in order to critique them. The bulk of them, the vast majority of them, are eternalistic. They actually veer towards the eternalism as opposed to the nihilism. However, there were big schools of nihilism in India um, at the Buddha's time and afterwards. You know, their philosophy was eat, drink and be merry because that's all it is. There's nothing else going to come, nothing is going to result from your actions and no such thing as karma. All of this stuff was dismissed. So you've got a very, very strong and strident nihilistic school. However, they were relatively small in comparison with the eternalistic schools. The most obvious eternalistic school would be the schools arising out of the Upanishads, out of the thinking of the Upanishads at that period. So, rather than keep it at the intellectual level, try to think in terms of your own practice. Where do you veer? Now, the most obvious element that we tend to veer towards is the concretizing of awareness. Turning awareness into a something. Talking about awareness as the underlying ground of being, the source of all things. When we start to use language, even to ourselves like this, um, unless you're familiar with it, you probably wouldn't realise it, we tend, up, we tend to end up speaking rather like the thinkers of the Upanishads. 
because that was exactly the position that they took. Advaita Vedanta, which has become so popular in the West, um, in various forms, through mixtures of um, various different schools, but primarily in the work of people like Eckhart Tolle, some of you all know of, The Power of Now, and his other book, which I can never remember the title of, that he followed up with, are really based primarily on Advaitin teachings, with a little bit of a dollop of Buddhism in. So it's a kind of mix-and-match um, element that you have. Now, the one thing is, I'm almost going right back to phase one, you know, the very first talk I gave you. The one thing, of course, that Advaita is, and philosophies like that, which posit a something that we can rely on, is they're consoling. They have a consolatory aspect to them. We can think, for example, that all beings are united in this ground. All beings come together in that ground. They're of the same nature. They are of the same flavour. Now what Nagarjuna had rather stridently tried to show was that was not the case. And in fact, any of the ontological categories that we cared to think in took us away from actually seeing. There's a little maxim, actually, in the philosophy of Wittgenstein, which is actually very useful to remember even in a Buddhist context. Don't think, look. Don't think how it is, look how it is. Because when we start to think about these things, and I mean here primarily what we would term some kind of philosophical, psychological thinking, we tend to end up with entities. We tend to end up with things. Um, It might be one thing, or it might be two things, it might be three things, or whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, what they call monism, dualism, pluralism. Yeah. In other words, there's one thing that's real, two things that are real, and a load of things that are real. The tendency, though, is much more towards the monism, dualism. One thing, two things idea. Um, and you find a plethora of, of thoughts, both East and West, which give us those ideas. One thing, two things. Advaita, obviously, is the one thing. Because Advaita means non-dual. My own particular feeling about the tendency for people involved in meditational practice, particularly in Buddhist context, to want to run away towards Advaita is the seeking for consolation. Almost moving back towards something which is far more edifying than the difficulties the Buddha presents you with. Not difficulties, just difficulties. You've heard me say it's not just difficulties over these talks. But the difficulties that are involved in staying with and living that, what do I call it, radical contingency. So actually the tendency, the temptation, can be not to trust in the Buddha's teaching. This connects with something we were talking about yesterday. Not to trust in the Buddha's teaching. Not to trust in this liberation that he actually spells out as a possibility for each and every one of us, but to want to disappear back into some kind of oceanic feeling of some sort. A lovely feeling of mingling with all others. (laughs) Can you briefly say what Advaita is? It's an uh, collective awareness or something? Advaita Vedanta. Let me give you a very brief sketch. It's very very simple, basically. There are two things um, which appear to be two things which are not actually two things. 
There is something called Brahman, which is usually defined as pure consciousness. It's the consciousness which allows all things to be seen. It's outside of space and time. It doesn't depend on anything else for its existence. That is Brahman. Then there is something, this is in its ultimate form, then there is something called Atman. When we talk about Anatta, it's exactly the same thing, except the Atta part is the Atman. Atman is, if you like, a little bit of that universal thing in each and every one of us. Something like a soul. It's not quite, there's no real soul language in Indian thought, but it's actually defined as the real self. The real self of the individual is defined as being that which is ultimately to be united with Brahman. And in fact, it probably already is, but we're under the sway of illusion, as about them being two separate things. So the whole goal of Advaita Vedanta and philosophies like that, practices like that, is to merge back into the one thing. Edwin Arnold had a lovely image. He said, the, the dewdrop slipping back into the shining sea. That's the kind of image that's being presented. The movement away from difference and differentialism, because all difference is illusory. It's a play of something called Maya, which simply means illusion in Sanskrit. It's a play of illusion. And so the world as we see it, which is the plethora of different things, is in fact illusory. So the whole practice is geared around about attaining this mergence, you know, becoming one in some sense. So that's the non-dual, that's the Advaita. And it's non-doing as well, isn't it? Part of it is non-doing. Um, Shankara, who's the main Indian thinker about this, is never very clear about it all. He really isn't. He more considers it to be um, almost a philosophical, mystical hypothesis that this is the way things must be. He was deeply, deeply criticised by the Hindus for this view. But it's become very popular in the West. Go down to Totnes, there's an awful lot of Advaitins <laughs> down there, posing as Buddhists. <laughs> How can you tell them? Pardon? How can you tell them? Oh, you've only got to question them just a little bit. <laughs> Scratch them on the surface and an Advaiting appears. <laughs> what is How do you spell the word? Sorry? How do you spell the word Advaita? Advaita. A-D-V-A-I-T-A. No. No. It's not like Ramana Maharshi is one particular form of Advaita. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very popular school in India, and that's how a lot of the stuff's come through. Some of the stuff emanating from Ramakrishna Vedanta as well is also of a similar nature as well. Parikh wants to know what Totnes is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Totnes is the local town just up the road, which is... Full of everybody, basically, kind of spiritual practice you care to think of, and a lot of Advaitins. It's a very dippy hippy town <laughs> in many ways. Anything alternative goes on in, in Tartanus. I joke because I lived there for many, many years. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of Advaita around. There's a lot of Advaita. And the problem is, people seem to think that Buddhism and Advaita are saying the same. They're not. The movement is exactly the opposite. <coughs> So, let me just give you that movement that I think was going on based on what we were talking about in relation to Nakshatra Nagarjuna. 
what is the pro- what is what is the process that's involved in Buddhist thought practice? It's the revealment of the unique nature of everything. It's only language which homogenizes and places similarity between things. Notions of similarity actually only come about by language. Hence that whole critique of language that you found in the Gardener. It is chimerical. It's not real language. It's a fiction, as it's put. Whereas the movement in Advaita, as you can see, I'm not going to go into it all again, but the movement in Advaita is the opposite direction. It's the movement towards sameness, based on the idea of universal consciousness as being the ground of reality. Everybody with me so far? Because I'm a little yeah. easy tonight. This yeah. is, yeah. So, Nagarjuna has pulled the rug out, and thinkers that followed after him also continued in this vein. And this whole basic movement became known as Madhyamaka, yeah. or you know, as um, the Madhyamaka. Can you spell Madhyamaka? Yeah, Madhya, M A D Y A. M-A-K-I-A. Madhyamaka. So this movement that the Madhyamaka school is talking about was dependent on showing the consequences of holding to views like Advaita. Within primarily a Buddhist framework, but often outside of a Buddhist framework. Showing actually the logical absurdity of holding to positions like non-dualism, for example, or even dualism, because there were lots of dualistic schools in India at the time as well. So he was attempting, as I say, to pull the rug out from under the feet of all of those philosophies that claimed to know something, but were not based on experience, primarily. What you could have an image of, as you had in the West actually, a lot of metaphysical thinkers never went out and did anything. What they did was sat by their fires and thought. <laughs> yeah. That's what a lot of philosophers do. You know, in fact, um, if you look in the Western tradition, Descartes is exactly that. He says, I'm sitting by my stove, thinking about this, and I come up with the idea that there must be two things. Extended things and thinking things and goes on and elaborates a form of dualism. Not quite the same way in Indian thought, but it's a similar movement where it's about thinking and not about doing. Whereas all, from the early teachings of the Buddha himself, all the way through, up to a certain point of scholasticism, in Buddhism had been about actually what is called doctrinal, having arisen out of experience. So... Dependent origination, what is that? That's a report on the Buddha's experience on the night of awakening. That's what he discovered. That's the unique nature of what he discovers. And so Nagarjuna and others are really there to try and reiterate, and hence the title Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka means a school of the middle way. 
And if you like, there's a, something polemical in doing that, because it's saying actually for all of its hundreds and hundreds of years up to that point, Buddhism had been proclaiming the middle way, but drifting off in other directions. And so here was your, somebody, somebody coming in and putting a rudder on it to try and keep it down the middle. Now what occurred after this, and again, I'm going to give you the, the, kind of the technical bit, and then hopefully we'll take it out into the realm of practice. You don't really, can't really understand this material unless you hear the technical bit first. What happened after this was that actually some folk, some other Indian thinkers, Buddhist thinkers, pointed the finger at Nagarjuna and said, uh-uh, Mr. Nagarjuna, you've ended up being a nihilist. You've just basically negated the world out of existence by denying all possible positions. That's not actually what he's saying, but, that's, but this was the accusation that was made of him. And so somebody came along called Asanga, okay, and his brother Vasubandhu. Um, and they formulated another school, which Rob, I know, has mentioned briefly with you, Chittamatra, or Yogachara, or Vijnana Pittimatra. All of them have the basic same idea, consciousness only. Yeah. Chitta, matra. Mind only, vijnana, Matra. Consciousness only. So these were the consciousness only, and these were extremely important. If you want to look at the late history of Buddhism, we've moved around now quite considerably away from the sort of stuff that early Buddhism was rooted in. If you want to know the most influential philosophy, probably, on the East Asian world, it was this form of philosophy, this form of thinking. So the Chittamatra school was written large in Chinese Buddhism, huge in Chinese Buddhism, as was, as it was also in Japanese Buddhism. So obviously it went to China first and then Japan, and then into Korean Zen, too. So this is enormously important. And what this was basically stating is all things are empty. Restatement of Nagarjuna, apart from one thing. <laughs> Consciousness. <laughs> because what perceives emptiness? Consciousness. So there has to be a reality there for emptiness to be perceived within any other phenomena. And they came up, and this is particularly Vasubandhu, you find this in what's called the Trinsica, which is after 30 verses. They came up with a number of ways of looking at the nature of mind. One with an eight-consciousness version of the mind. There's usual six plus another two. And something called the three aspects. Triswadara. The three aspects. Now that's what I'm going to start with first, because this will show you how emptiness is being applied particularly in Chittamatra thought. There are basically three aspects of the world, for want of a better word. The first is known, is, is known as the constructed aspect. It's known as parakalpada. So there's the constructed aspect. This is the realm of language and thought Differentiation, distinction, perception, all of the things that go on is the world of the constructed. So we have this constructed aspect, which is, if you like, is the grid system 
say, let's just take language, the grid system that we lay on top of experience in order to interpret experience. Experience itself, which is the next aspect, is known as paratantra. It's a flow and it's a flux, arising and falling continuously. So, what is happening on this continuous flux of experience, we are placing something which is like a grid, something static, which divides it up and cuts it up in particular ways. And without going into it again, <clears throat> remember I was saying that different languages will do this in different ways. You will take this nature of experience, this flux of perceptions, this flux of ordinary minute-by-minute experience, and then start to differentiate it, often for pragmatic purposes, using language. So it's cutting it up, chopping it up. And then finally, there is something known as the perfected aspect, which is the para-nishpana. And rather than being three things, there really is only two. Because the perfected aspect is the understanding of the lack of the constructed aspect in the dependent aspect. So I said that again. Okay. Told you it was complicated. <laughs> it gets very simple when you get used to it, though. Okay, let me, let me just go through the three things again so we've got those clear. You've got a constructed aspect, you've got the flux of experience, which is known as the dependent aspect. The constructed aspect is language, everything that I've just mentioned. The flux of experience, moment by moment, arising and falling of all of the material of experience. Uh, in other words, it's a series of dependent arisings. Arising and passing away, arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And then we have the perfected aspect. Now, the perfected aspect is nothing other than the absence the absence of any constructed aspect in the dependent aspect. So actually, if you want to put this in emptiness terms again... No? Can you, well, because you sort of started saying, the first time you started explaining it, it was the understanding of the lack of, yeah, and well, then you went back and... So the lack of or the absence of, it doesn't really matter. Of? Of, of the constructed, of the constructed aspect, aspect in the in dependent, the dependent aspect. aspect. Now, what, that actually, what does that actually mean? Come on. <laughs> what does it actually mean? What it means is that our actual experience has an absence or an emptiness of any of this constructed material in it. Yeah. Absence or emptiness? Well, it's actually, the word phrase that would be used is actually, it is empty of the constructed aspect. So, in other words, again, it's an absence. But really, I mean, <laughs> what would be our experience if we didn't have the language? We wouldn't experience just the same way we do knowing everything already. I mean, it's all one big thing. Mm, well, that's, that's, a big, that's a big question, isn't it? Is there, well, is there experience without language? A lot, and uh, I, I remember as a kid, you know, I suffered probably from lack of everything. Lack of attention, <coughs> lack of information, mm -hmm. lack of... And, and I remember spending days in, in a spleen mm -hmm. and having no words for it. Mm -hmm. 
what was my experience then? So it was what, very much amorphic. From the point of view of langu language construction, yes, of course it's amorphous. But even from what I felt, it was mm. just like a pit. Yeah. But in a sense, we're going back the opposite way, because we already have language. Yeah. We already have language. And the tendency is, and this is really what they're trying to get at, the tendency is almost automatically to identify whatever is going on under some form of conceptual construction. That's what we do. Yeah. Do you hear pure sound? When you're sitting here doing your spacious meditation. Mostly not, do you? You hear the tweeting of a bird. You hear a car going up the lane. People walking about in the house. And all I'm saying is in that moment, and I'm not saying it hasn't changed, but when we normally do this initially, that's what we have happening. That we automatically identify something. Yeah, we might be able to release our grasp on that, but in the first moment we identify it as such and such. What they're trying to suggest is that in doing so, we miss the primacy of experience, the way it impacts on us. Because not only do I hear it as the bird, the owl, or whatever it is, the car, it's every other bird and every other owl I've ever heard. In some sense, is coming into that perception. That's not different from what we've been talking about all along, is it? It's a slightly different way of putting it, because it's actually limited the range to a degree of emptiness. So emptiness in this tradition is very specific. It's the, you know, the... Dependent aspect is empty of any constructed aspect. Yeah. So in other words, experience will be flowing along quite happily, irrespective of any of our grid marking it. So we would be, the normal tendency is to grid mark it all, to try and get a grasp on experience to control it. There's a lot about issues about control. In fact, language is wonderful, isn't it? That's what language does. Helps us to a degree to control our world and identify things. And re-identify them. It's just a strong blank on the dependent aspect. Dependent aspect. It's a, the dependent aspect is the flux of experience. In other words, it doesn't, it's not just there, it's a series of dependent arisings. Mm -hmm. you know, each generated by previous causes and conditions. So, as with many of the schools that arose out of this view, and some of them particularly are things like Zogchen, with a very heavy dose of Chitamatra and Zogchen, was the movement back to simply a ground of awareness that perceives the flux. Now, does that make sense? Because, again, I don't want to lose you. Just pristine awareness. Again, this is pristine awareness. Right, yeah. Yeah. They don't think that consciousness was constructed then? They don't think that consciousness is constructed, no. Okay. And to add to the complication, <laughs> there are eight forms of consciousness that are identified. Five sense consciousness, 
plus thought, that which perceives thought, mental events. Then there is something called defiled consciousness, klishtamanas. And then the really big aspect of Chittamatran thought, which is known as the alia, alia virginia. The alia is the, what, is the ground out of which our world is constructed. It's the repository of karmic formations. Now, if you again, does this kind of thought ever come up to you? How does karma operate? How does it remain in consciousness and then ripen at another period in time? And the alia was a way of trying to explain how consciousness plus its karmic accretions ripened over a period. Actually, it's known as consciousness as the ground of all. Kunjinabhashebha in Tibetan. Consciousness is the ground of all. Are you going to explain a bit more about that? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it sounds, sounds so esoteric. You're yeah, not going to make much of it at all. Now, what it's saying is there is a repository for karmic formations, which is the alia. Now, actually, alia can be seen as a seed bed. Into it are implanted seeds, bija, which are the karmic seeds. They will ripen into the world that we have. They are, in some senses, psychologically for us, they are projected into the world. Now, because it's not just a seed bed which remains only those seeds those karmic dispositions, because remember, it's all your volitional activities which create your world. Yeah. It's going taking very seriously the idea of the sankharas, although they didn't use this language. The idea is that actually your habits are your world. Yeah. That's the way I see it. Now, with habits of thinking, habits of doing things, ways of doing things, I create a world. And in that sense is... You know, is it a shared world? Well, some of the dispositions and habits will be the same, some of them will be very different. That's, again, a big problem with this type of thinking. And out of this seedbed, there is this projection, this creation of a world. Now, in, in many ways, even your habits and dispositions, and remember going back to the early stuff I talked about in dependent origination, I said that the Sankharas are both formed and forming. Yeah, they're projected onto the world, they have a kind of test in the world, and they're introjected back into the individual. And so they don't remain the same. So the habits are subtly changing, the dispositions are subtly changing. The same is the case here with the alia. So there's extrajection and introjection. You extraject all of these dispositions into the world, which in a sense is the world, but the world feeds it back into you. And so more seeds are laid down. It's only with the exhaustion of this underlying seedbed of consciousness, which is what it is, that liberation is said to occur. So when you've liberated yourself from all the dispositions and all of the habits, and there's nothing literally to carry over, can there be liberation? <coughs> that activity is an activity of consciousness. All of the things which are projected into the world themselves are empty of intrinsic existence. 
just like we project in Nagarjuna's thought, just like we project intrinsic existence into things where it doesn't actually exist. Similarly with this, there is no intrinsic existence to the things that we perceive in the world. However, the difference is, the one thing that's doing this process, this ground of awareness, which is our world, and what arises in our world for us, is real. It has an ontological reality. So that's why it's called, you know, consciousness is the basis of all. It's basis of samsara, and in its undefiled state, it's the basis of liberation, too. So the movement in these kind of forms of thought, and I can't go into them all because it's far, far too many, in these forms of thought is the movement back to some primordial ground of awareness. Now, in Dzogchen, that's referred to as Rigpa. Rigpa is, well, it's the Tibetan word for Vidya in Sanskrit. Where do we start off in dependent origination? Avidya, which is non-intrinsic awareness. Yeah. To have intrinsic awareness, or to have non-intrinsic awareness, I should say, to have non-intrinsic awareness, ignorance, then I must have the real thing, intrinsic awareness. So this is like intrinsic awareness turned, you know, one of those dimmer things, dimmer switches that you have in a light, it's turned low probably out altogether. So awareness is, from this point of view, always there, always functioning, always creating a world. This is what's going on. Now, there's two ways of hearing this, and I want to come move away from the technical stuff, and stop me if you want to know some more about the technical stuff before I move on. But from the point of view of practice, what appears to be going on when you are in deep states of meditation, observing the arising and passing away of phenomena. What do you think is happening? Oh, you've been doing it for three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Consciousness comes up when there's an object to be observed. Yes. And there becomes a progressive identification, doesn't there, with that consciousness rather than with the object which appears in awareness. You know, use consciousness and awareness, you can use them synonymously, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So there tends to be a progressive lessening of the hold on whatever objects appear in consciousness, and more of an identification with the awareness which allows the object to be seen. Does that sound something roughly like this, what's going on? <laughs> so there's a diminution of holding on to the object, but a reification taking place in terms of the consciousness which views the object. Now, in one way is that you can see this kind of thinking arising out of exactly what I've just done to you, thinking about what's going on in meditation practice. So rather than being, again, a fully-blown philosophy, one way of looking at this stuff, with all the problems that would entail, if you want to ask me about them when I open this question, please do. What you've got is initially a report 
on how experience occurs. What's going on in experience? All the identification that's going on with objects is taking place in what? It's taking place in the paracalpita, in the construction. We're constructing a world of discrete things with all the projection of things like intrinsic existence into them. Because that's what construction does. However, there is that flux of experience which actually is dependent and is nothing other than the conscious movement of experience of which the constructive aspect is not to be found in it. So that we progressively, as we begin to meditate, start to move back to the position of beginning gradually, gradually, gradually to end up being more in the place of the awareness rather than whatever is appearing to awareness. Spacious awareness, for example, that exercise that you were given to do, and I know some of you are still doing. Spacious awareness, what is it? It's holding any object that arises in consciousness. Now, because of the nature of what's going on and how it's occurring so quickly, I hear a sound here, I hear a sound there, I hear a sound outside, I see a thought arising, I feel a sensation in my body, all this stuff is arising. And it's arising very quickly, isn't it? Sometimes it starts to slow down, but it's arising relatively very quickly. And so there appears to be a unified consciousness underlying that, which it isn't really. What it is, is just the movement of consciousness with different objects arising and passing away very quickly. That is all. That is the nature of experience. What about when you're aware of a few things all at the same time? Well, in a sense, you're not aware of them at the same time. This is something you can challenge, because Buddhism says that you can't be aware of things at exactly the same moment. In one consciousness movement, there is only one object. It it happens so quickly. Present moment is so small, but yet we kind of see it only kind of when we glued a few of those moments together. Yes, it's almost in retrospect that we see that. Uh, The other question that often gets asked is can you have two conflicting feelings in the same moment? You can't because they're different objects. So the feeling of pleasantness arises in one moment, and the feeling of unpleasantness arises in the next moment. So that idea you can both love and hate something at the same time. Well, what's actually happening in that experience of something like love and hate or pleasant and unpleasant being together is that they're oscillating very quickly. One moment followed by another moment followed by another moment and they appear as if they're operating in the same moment. And the same with the unitary idea of the nature of consciousness is not that consciousness is one thing, is that it's operating extremely quickly. In fact, even using one word, consciousness, it's actually consciousnesses that we have here, appears to make it one thing. And why wouldn't we want, why wouldn't we want, in a sense, a unified one thing to be present in Buddhist thought? Why wouldn't it be, you know, in sense, some senses, within Buddhist theory? Everything would be the same all the time. It could be that possibility, but it also would be smuggling in a real self. Yeah. In through the back door. They're saying that we are awareness. This school. That's right. That's what we are. That's what we are. What what we are is the seedbed, which projects a world, and then interjects it back into ourselves.
and that process continuing for as long as the Sangsaric world continues. It sort of fits in, me, this sort of fits in my experience actually, because I often feel that um, uh, I'm aware of, yeah, primarily aware of something. And it, but in order to explain it, like say to you or to someone else, mm. I have to sort of subtly switch consciousness, consciousness into a different sort of, into a different area almost of where the sort of language is, where the, where the, where the yeah, mm. the space I'm in mean, appears to be um, non-verbal. I have mm. to sort of to be able to explain it. Yes, yes. You've yeah. got to move it into a yeah. different sphere of consciousness yeah. in order to do that. Yeah. You have got to move into the sphere of construction and consciousness yeah. in order to talk about experience. I mean, think about dreams. Yeah. Dreams have a, a kind of reality and um, vividness to them that gets completely lost when you put them into words. Do you ever experience that when you try to put your dreams into words? It all sounds not quite right. Wasn't quite like that. Yet are dreams verbal or non-verbal? Sometimes they are. Most of the time they're not. They're mostly to do with images. Very, very powerful images. Rising and passing away. Rising and passing away. Often with their own kind of narrative construction. Weaving them together. Now in a similar way, and I say similar because it's not identical, in a similar way what you have is the flux of your experience which when I tell you about a sunset sounds rather boring to the actual experience of it. But we don't need to talk about a sunset, do we? I mean we can just look at a sunset with awareness and no words, look on the front lawn at all the trees and everything without any words appearing yes, in the mind. that's exactly what in a sense is being said is that we don't have to bring that constructed aspect to this flow of our experience, apart from the need, obviously, to communicate from time to time. However, what we've ended up with is an over-identification. This is very much still within the same ballgame that the guards were set rolling. You know, that we end up identifying too much with the linguistic world. We identify with that, not with the primacy of the experience that actually the linguistic world is applied to. So we've actually lost contact with the fundamental. As soon as we begin to identify with this verbal construction. And that's all it is, it's verbal construction. Were the people who developed this particular approach, did they have the... Canon available. I mean, were they, they had a similar canon available. So they were kind of ignoring what the Buddha had taught. To a degree, yes. Yeah. To a degree. They would say, <laughs> I think in all fairness, what they're trying to do is make sense out of what the Buddha taught. Because there are certain mechanisms which are in the early canon which are never spoken about. Yeah, and one of the big ones was always that there is no description in the Pali canon and the other canons, which would have been pretty well identical to the Pali canon, of, for example, the mechanism of rebirth. Rebirth. There's no description of the mechanism of rebirth by the Buddha whatsoever. It was left to the Abhidhammas to come up with a, a theory about how rebirth occurred. This, you know, with its seed bed and the introjection and the projection and things being carried over from one lifetime to a lifetime, gives you a mechanism for it. So, in other words, they were trying to fill in the holes in a kind of theoretical picture. Is this, oh yeah, is it a, 
theoretical construction or can you observe it? Well, actually, within Chidamatra, they would actually say you can observe it. You can actually observe its workings. Yeah. Our propensities, because they are in some senses dispositions which are seeded within us to create certain experiences for ourselves. Yeah. You can actually observe this by simply staying with conscious awareness and seeing this whole mechanism operating. Yeah. So it's... Yeah, if I'm being much more charitable <coughs> towards this, and it is very important, this is the only reason I'm sharing with this, this with you tonight, because it's been extremely important and extremely influential in some of the things probably some of you have practiced, perhaps. You know, pure awareness type schools. You know, some of you might have done Zogchen and that. And this is where a lot of it originates. I wouldn't say entirely, entirely with Zogchen, but certainly some of the other schools that arise out of this notion that actually, rather than being a philosophical system, it's a way of trying to understand what's going on in our experience. Trying to make sense of it. That's always been... A, and perhaps you do this. I mean, I certainly used to, used to do it all the time. I'd sit there and think, what's going on? You know, how, how does this arise? You know, what's going on in perception? What comes together? You know, what is the nature of consciousness that perceives this object but then perceives that object? Now, if you're doing any of that, even rather mildly, you're into this game. <laughs> yeah. You're doing, if you like, philosophy of some sort. Yeah, I hesitate to use that word because it's very, very Greek. But you're in engaging in constructing a theory for yourself about what's going on. Now, Nagarjuna said, get rid of all of that. This is almost a movement back to trying to create some kind of Abhidharma theory about what's going on. And it's no accident that one of the chief proponents of this, Vasubandhu, writes this enormous work called the Abhidharma Kosha, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a Sarvastavada Abhidharma, which again is trying to delineate out all the experiences that are going on. And for some of you, I don't know if any of you got a real sense of what the Abhidharma is about. I mean, I mentioned it briefly. But the Abhidharma is an enormous intellectual construction within the history of Buddhism, it purports to give the total workings of the mind. Yeah. Um, and pretty well similar, the, the only two really totally extant Abhidharmas that we have are the Theravadan one, obviously, and the Saravastavada Abhidharma. We have fragments of lots and lots of others, and they all appear to be doing something fairly similar. <clears throat> Let's take the first book of the Theravada Abhidharma. What does it do? It purports to list out all of the mental factors that you will discover and all of the forms of consciousness. It's a great huge list of material, saying these are all the mental factors, both ethical, unethical, occasional, universal, uh, and, and there's a chart. I mean, you've seen it in the Barry chart, haven't you, that, that uh, Andy did yes. for everybody. It's huge, the actual stuff that's going on in this. Um, but what does that tell you about mind? Not a lot. Does it? Tells you if you like the furniture of the mind. Yeah, it's like if I listed everything out in this room, you know, all the people who are in this room, plus all the furniture and the statues and the bits and pieces, it wouldn't actually tell me much about the room, would it? From any practical purpose. So what you've got to do next is now describe the relations between every object in this room. 
that you're sitting there, that you're sitting here, and the statue is in the front, and I'm sitting here, and that. That's what the last book of the Abhidharma does for every state of mind. Shows every possible permutation that can arise amongst all of this stuff listed at the beginning. So what, what did um, the Abhidharma Kosha add? What did Pasadamu's Abhidharma add? He really... Did, or why did he, at that point... Sarvastavada, I mean, Sarvastavada is it's a slightly different theoretical construct in that it talks about dharmas being existent, sarva, vasta, vada. Things are existent at all times. <coughs> That's actually what it means in Sanskrit. So it's a theory of how the dharmas exist in all the temporal phases. Again, past, present and future. You don't get anything similar in the Theravada Dharma. You don't have that. Plus you get the projection of Svabhava to each of the dharmas. The effect they have is real, and it's real in the past, it's real in the future, and it's real in the present. Yeah. So it's a way of understanding the nature of the mind and the way the world is constructed <coughs> for us. Plus it reduces the number of dharmas. Mm. You, know, you have 82 in the Theravada and Abhidharma, 75 in the Sarvastavada Abhidharma. Did he write this when he was following the Vaibhashika school? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Historically, I don't know. <clears throat> I mean, the, the Vaibhashikas were great Abhidharmas as well. So a lot of it is being influenced by that kind of material, plus material that has disappeared now as well. But it's an enormous, yeah, just that's to give you just an impression of what it's all about. So actually, what you've got in Chitamatra is a continuation of Abhidharma thought, of trying to understand how the nature of the mind works. What is this consciousness? Now, if you've done any of that, you're an Abhidharmist. <laughs> Even if you began to think about any of that material rudimentarily, you're an Abhidharmist. Now, <clears throat> let me say something about this whole project. You know, from really across the two talks that I've given over these last few nights is that all of this is good and useful, theoretically, as being a map. And actually, Abhidharma originally, and the way actually I was taught it in Sri Lanka, Abhidharma was taught to me as being, if you like, an encyclopedia of what you're likely to discover when you engage in Vipassana, meditation. So if you actually do the practice, which many of them don't, this is the sort of things that you're going to discover. <laughs> They're just happy with knowing you all, <laughs> rather than seeing it in actuality. But this is the sort of thing you're going to discover. Now, <clears throat> it has a usefulness. It has a pragmatic usefulness to that. And personally, I mean, I've often used Abhidharma as a way of trying to understand what's going on in experience, because it's happening so quickly, a lot of experience, that actually you can begin to bring it under some of the broad categories. That are spoken about, and the more refined you get at watching this, the more you see the detail of what's actually happening. The more, for example, you can see the functioning of, say, seven universals arising in every moment of consciousness, you know, where you have things like contact and one pointedness and a degree of sati, you know, of mindfulness coming in. Every moment of consciousness has to have a minimum of that. You begin to see this in the way the, the nature of the mind's workings. <clears throat> However, despite its usefulness in that sphere, it's not the thing. 
you've still got to go and do the work. You've still got to go and see it. Now, if I was going to give you an analogy, here's an analogy I'll give you. Or simile. I could say like. It's like this. It's going to say simile. So, here's a simile. It's having an ordnance survey map, a map of a terrain, a topography, and staring at the map. Now, there are two ways of using this map, isn't there? There's one people who get really hooked on maps. If you ever count, I've counted a few people who really like maps. Just looking at maps. Oh, yes, I know that place. And following it through. And, oh, that would be a nice walk. But never actually doing it. <laughs> That's some of the Abaddonists. Yeah? Now, actually, to really understand a terrain, you have to walk it. Yeah? So the map helps and guides you, but it's not identical to that terrain. It will give you a clue about how, for example, you know, it's structured, what you're likely to find. You know, here's a farm, here's a lake, here's an escarpment, and so on and so forth, if you know how to read the map. But it's not identical, is it? And you can get gulled into the belief that actually doing this kind of material, looking at this kind of material, is actually a substitute for doing the real thing. And this is really a cautionary word for about all aspects of Buddhist thought. You can get hooked on the interesting ideas without ever doing the work. Yeah. So really to understand the terrain of which this is a map of, you know, giving you the topography of, you've got to walk it. And actually when you've walked it, it's an entirely different experience to looking at the map. An entirely different experience. So... These Abhidharma theorists, such as those reason arised in Chittamatra, give us very useful maps, reports on experience, but they're not identical to the experience. So I would actually say, let's come back to the Nagarjuna position. Come back to what Nagarjuna is doing. Being deeply, deeply suspicious of theory. Yeah. Even just the theory that seems to present itself for you about the ways that we look at things. Questioning what's going on in your actual experience. Looking at it much more deeply. Much, much more intensely. Because otherwise it ends up just being this rather stale looking at the map. Not actually engaging in the practice. I could go on. <laughs> as you probably guessed. Because <laughs> there's an awful lot more to say about this. Is, this is less than even a thumbnail sketch of this. And I hope I've just given you enough to kind of water your appetite about its usefulness and its non-usefulness here. Yeah, Bridget. Is there perhaps a danger also that if you, to use your analogy, you look at the map before you go on the walk, when mm. you go on the walk your experience will be coloured by the map. Yeah. You will be noticing things that's right. and not noticing other things. That's right. Yes. So. Yes. I think that's a very good way of putting it. You will be experienced, but you will, your whole experience will be coloured by what you've seen before. And in fact, the map could be inaccurate, mm. as many maps are, because, you know... Equally well, without a map you might get lost. Yes, which is why I said it has a usefulness. <laughs> it has a pragmatic usefulness. Mm. But what ends up happening is an over-identification with the tool. Mm. Yeah. It's there simply for guidance, mm. but we can over-identify And I agree with you. I think, yes, without the map, you might get lost. In fact, this terrain of mental phenomena is extremely complex, and it's happening so fast, as I keep saying to you. 
you start to see it slow down a little bit, say in a retreat like this. You begin to observe things that you haven't observed before. You might even want to place them in some way. You might even want to think about the nature of awareness that's revealing this to you. But don't get hooked on any particular description Mm. of it. Or bring that descriptive Mm -hmm. material, as Bridget is suggesting, to your observations already. How does this get rid of suffering? How does it get rid of suffering? That's a very, very good question. That's (laughs) a very good question. Well, it gets rid of suffering in the sense that it's... Well, let's take the Nagarjuna's view for a start off. But actually, part of his issue is that a lot of the time we suffer because we have a view of things which are a bit like a core belief. So, here's one of our core beliefs. I think things are really permanent, although everything around me is telling me that they're impermanent. But I still hang on to that deep, deep, deep idea of a search for some degree of certainty, a search for some degree of stability in my life. Now, if this was easy, and I'm not joking now, if this was easy, we really all would be awakened, because all of us know this. So that means that deep within us, there is some core assumption that we can't quite access, but still clings to certainty, that still clings to the search for something which isn't going to change. Actually, coming back to where I started from, and talking about Advaita, I think that's the consolation of Advaita for many people. You can go back to a ground which is an unchanging ground. And that will be a liberation. Now here the liberation occurs, the ending of Dukkha occurs, when we cease to keep on identifying and searching for unchanging certain realities. Be they self, with all of the ethics that arise out of, or non-ethics that arise out of the clinging to self, and also the relinquishing, the loosening up of our grasping after unchanging phenomena. Because I think, and again, I've joked about this actually over the talks, haven't I, that we really, really do feel some ways immortal. I mean, don't you ever feel that? Of course not. You know, it really is that case that everything's going to die. All things are going to die, but not me. We often have that, unless you're really, really confronted with your mortality. That's what actually happens. But deep, deep, deep down, as as what I'm calling a core assumption, is the idea that there is something that's not going to change, that something is going to be around forever. Uh, So, John, would the the core belief be some kind of um, (coughs) basic resistance to reality? Yes. Yeah. It's the avidya again. It's not wanting to know. Yeah. Coming back, we're coming almost full circle, aren't we? Back to some of the stuff I talked about in the earlier talks. But uh, it's that deep, deep, deep resistance of not wanting to know. Until you clear that, you will continue to experience dukkha. Because if you like, it's a mismatch between the way things are and the image, be that an image which you have cognitive access to, or an image which you hold deeply implanted in yourself as a habitual response, there's a mismatch between the way things are and the way deeply I feel them to be. And as long as there is that mismatch, there will be dukkha, because I shall always be caught out. 
that the that my idea, my image, my picture, whatever it might be, my thought, isn't identical to what is actually going on. That we think, and this is coming back almost to some of the stuff I've spoken about this, week, this evening, that we think, and what we think in, is rather static. Isn't it? Language is actually kind of clumpy. It's creaky. It operates in blocks. You know, and I love literature, I love writing and things like this. But actually, in relationship to our experience, it's rather clunky. It's rather static. It's operating in these rather monolithic blocks in trying to talk about it, no matter how well you nuance your writing or your thinking about it. Whereas, actually, what's going on is flowing fast. It's flowing quickly. You don't really capture it at all. It's gone by the time that you try to put it into words. So language itself is speaking almost a certainty. If I can only accurately capture the experience in words, then perhaps I would be free. If I could really, really describe it. No, you won't. You might become a poet. <coughs> but you won't be free. So is the act of writing supporting delusion? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> it's the act of supporting delusion. Some, I'm hedging my bets here, <laughs> and I'm doing that deliberately because I think there are some forms of writing which actually um, really shake us up and make us re-examine. And I think certainly great forms of poetry do that. And I'm not talking about the stuff you can easily remember, but the poetry you would have to keep revisiting. Because yeah. it tells us, it brings us into a relationship with something we think is understood. And shows us a different perspective on it, just like modern art does. Yeah. It'll often take the familiar and defamiliarise it for us. And that's useful. Could you give an example of a couple of poets that do that? Uh, yes, I can actually. Um, there's a poet called Paul Celan. Some of you might have come across. Um, C E L A N. Paul Celan. Um, Rilke, to a degree. Some of the French symbolist poets. Um, Malamé. Baudelaire, some of these will also do it. There are quite, quite a number. If you want a fuller list, I can give you a fuller list. But these, these are the ones that immediately come to mind. Um, I can't think of another Austrian poet, Georg Trakel. It also takes the familiar, jumbles it all up. Rimbaud, the poet Rimbaud. He talked about poetry as being the systematic disordering of the senses at the age of 16. <laughs> Stopped writing poetry by the time he was 19. <laughs> Pardon? He became a slave trader and gun runner. <laughs> yes. And died a rather hideous death in Marseille, having lost a, a leg to cancer. But in that early period, um, he was just fantastic as a poet. 
he really ended up doing those things. This is right way off the point of what we've been talking about. He really ended up doing those things because he saw ultimately poetry as a failed project. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't going to bring him what he thought it would do. Mm. But fantastic poetry, if you've never read it, please look at it, it's wonderful stuff. What is the difference between seeing one consciousness and, and a different consciousness? Well, one one is dynamic, and the other one can be appear to be rather static. In the in the in the version which I'm trying to make you see is that rather than one monolithic consciousness observing everything as a sort of I don't know the background to all experience, what you actually have is consciousness moving different forms of actually Abhidharma again 121 different forms, you know, moving extremely rapidly, taking up different objects. Wholesome, unwholesome, neutral, you know, super mundane. It's going in and out very, very quickly. It's actually very dynamic, the flux of the mind. Uh, I think it's a very simplistic picture to have the idea that there is one form of consciousness just there as a background observer. It makes it rather static. Is it possible that it won't be possible to tell the difference between those two ways of looking at it? Because if there's mm. always another object of awareness... Because that would kind of consolidate why there's the two approaches. Yeah, I think actually with with experience it is possible to differentiate the difference between the two. That you see, start to see this movement, literally the movement of mind, in, in this extremely quick and rapid fashion, where it moves from object to object. But you still don't know whether that's one consciousness moving around, or each consciousness at different places. Um, you do begin to discern it because each has a different ethical tinge to it. Yeah. Consciousness. But you can never be aware of the hypothetical space oh, between oh, Kijun yeah. because that's right. It wouldn't exist. It's just to to kind of say that one of these approaches is, is in some way flawed, like the Zogchen approach. Mm. It just seems so, it's such a big statement mm -hmm. in, in many ways. You know, for these guys that are sat in caves. For, mm. I'm not saying it's flawed so much as I think it can be unhelpful and in Buddhist terms, and perhaps I'm being slightly unfair here, but in Buddhist terms it can be like smuggling in something like a static basis of existence through the back door. In other words, you end up violating the middle way yet again. That is what I'm deeply suspicious of. If you can hold it without that, and I think it might be possible to do that, I think possibly it's not problematic. But I think ultimately, of course, we are very, very swayed by the theoretical considerations. You know, almost what Bridget was saying, that's what we bring to our experience. Now, the best way, I think, is actually... And although I guess it's almost like shooting myself <laughs> in the foot here, because I've given you a whole load of stuff, which is ways of looking at emptiness in different formulations most of which are, I think, of probably interest, but not actually of practical nature. And perhaps it's better to go back to the primary nature of the experience that you're having and stick with that. Yeah. I hope that doesn't sound muddled, but it's, it's I think, you, know, you need to know about a little about this out of interest, because you know, some of you will have practiced Zogchen, some of you will have come across these approaches. 
these different forms. You know, I know some of you have been involved in the Gutpa school. You know, so Prasangika Madhyamaka is the, the top form, it's the bee's knees. Um, whereas actually when you go back to the early teaching, and if anything came out of all my talks over these you know, three weeks so far, it would be the ones on dependent origination I'd really want you to concentrate on. Because that's the primary teaching. So, if, if you say there's no gap between these, it's uh, an arising, mm. falling away, arising, falling away. Uh, in Advaita, are they putting the the consciousness in a gap? Well, to if you, I mean, the pure consciousness. It's a hypothetical, isn't it? As Gavin is saying, that you're kind of instigate instilling a one thing in the gaps between the small moments of arising and passing away and talking about it as being unified. Are you saying that there are no gaps between the one, well, in, in the one sense, falling away and that's the That's right. In a the sense, there are no gaps because one consciousness moment, again, this is theoretical, but you know, yeah. this is what it says in the Abhidhamma text, one consciousness moment is immediately followed by another consciousness moment. So, because it's a, they're absolute in continuity, but it's not the one thing. In other words, this form, this moment of consciousness conditions this moment of consciousness, which conditions this moment of consciousness, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so, if we roughly gloss our experience, it would appear to be the experience of a one thing, but it isn't. It's of these movements, and you can begin to discern that movement of one thing arising and one thing passing away, particularly when they're of, for example, different ethical um, persuasions, complexions. You know, the movement of one thing from being, say, ethically wholesome to being ethically unwholesome. But isn't that just the... How is the ethical tinge on the consciousness? I don't, I don't get that. Oh, gosh, is another big one. Um, because consciousness never arises alone, all, I mean, part of the theory behind the Abhidharma is that there isn't just consciousness. You've heard me say this a number of times. It's consciousness arising with an object. The way Buddha Gosa puts it, I think it's a lovely, lovely little analogy. He says, consciousnesses are like a king. Consciousness is like a king. It never arises alone or never arrives alone. It arrives with a huge retinue of stuff. Now, some of these have to be there. And they don't have any ethical persuasion to them whatsoever. They're called ethically... Well, they're actually referred to as ethically variable. They take on the complexion of whatever else arises with it. Such as contact. There has to be contact there. There has to be a degree, no matter how infinitesimal for me to perceive anything, of one-pointedness. Yeah, even if I just vaguely just hear a glimpse of sound outside, I've got to have had that fleeting one-pointedness and certainly contact for it to be there, and there's seven of these, all, all in all. Then there are things which arise which are called occasionals. They may be there or they may not be there. The universals always have to be there. And then there are the ethically wholesome forms of consciousness, of the ethically wholesome mental factors, and the ethically unwholesome mental factors. So, for example, you might have um, compassion arising with it, which would make the consciousness with the ethically variable, and the consciousness itself, a wholesome form of consciousness. Because it now actually has, primarily as its objects, wholesomeness. But isn't the ethical tinge 
things on the object and not consciousness? Well, no, because the object is only seen through the consciousness. You know, to use that. In other words, it's only that concatenation of arisings with consciousness and the mental factors that we actually call world and the object. Now, when I perceive that, and perhaps I've got all these feelings about it, you know, and I want to get rid of it because I really hate the sight of it or whatever. Poor jug, I don't really mean it. <laughs> but when I, when I do that, that's all been generated by mind. Obviously, the immediate contact with the object is there. But actually, the object, in a way, is obscured by all of the mental factors that come into contact with it. This is why, and this is, in a sense, why it's extrapolated in this way, because the opening phrase of the Dhammapada, you know, the most translated book in the history of Buddhism, is mind is the forerunner of all things. You bring that mind, and so it's very clear that you know, with an unwholesome mind, you create a certain world, with a wholesome mind, you create another type of world. Now, that's actually happening very fast. Because our worlds are changing, we move from the unwholesome to the wholesome, to sometimes the ethically neutral very quickly. Yeah. Um, if, um, if I understand correctly, mind can observe mind. Sorry? Mind can observe mind, mm. in, at least in the Chitta Mantra. In Chitta that's because you have manas, which is defiled mind, defiled consciousness. And actually, the job of the defiled consciousness is to misinterpret everything that's going on. Because it's full of defilements. That's basically what's happening. So on those eight forms of consciousness, what you've got is the normal six plus those other two. The alia, the seedbed consciousness, and you've got the klishtamanas. And it's the job, in a sense, of the klishtamanas, because it is defiled consciousness to misinterpret everything that's going on in all the other forms. And that's what we're bringing to experience as well. We bring our defiled minds to experience. And it goes back to your question, what's going what? You know, how do you bring an end to Dukkha through all this? Well, actually, in this system, by eradicating the Klishtamanas and all the content of the Klishtamanas, as well as the seeds which perpetuate this um, delusional world that we're engaged in. So liberation only occurs when they're brought to an end. And you're left with the six sense bases. It's not a... Well, I was wondering, in what way is the middle way, you know, in this respect uh, between pure awareness, emptiness? Uh, what does that mean, middle way, then? Well, literally, as I've said, the middle way means the middle way between extremes. And the extremes are of something being there all the time or nothing being there. But then emptiness is, seems to me like on one side, not in the middle. Well, you see, I think that's... When we misinterpret emptiness, I think it can appear to be that way. But it's not, because it's a middle way, because all it's doing, the notion of emptiness, remember this, this is really, really important, all that emptiness is doing is perceiving an emptiness at the core of our experience of something we believe to be there. That's all. It's not wiping away the world. So in our experience, no matter how we put it, you know, and I've put it in a number of ways over these talks, no matter how we put it, it's the temptation to see there being something intrinsic to the object, to you, I, and any object in the world. You know, that intrinsic nature could be, you know, talking about people, as I talked about it one night, 
good or bad. This person is intrinsically good or they're intrinsically bad. Sometimes that even gets used as a phrase. You know, they're at their heart, at their core, a bad person. Or at their core, a good person. Or, for example, to see something intrinsic in terms of the nature of the object. Either it's intrinsically beautiful or it's intrinsically ugly. Now, what it's saying is it's empty of any such projection. You, I, and the world around us is empty of that projection that we're placing on it. I mean, I think actually emptiness, conceptually, is really easy to get because it just means the absence of intrinsic existence. That's all it means. And it's a middle way because it doesn't actually then go on to posit how the world is because that can only be experienced. Now I'm perceiving it with the lack of intrinsic existence. And it becomes, to use that word, as you know, I don't particularly like the word emptiness, although I continue to use it. It's that spaciousness to things when you take the centre out of them. So is, is, are you using um, um, empty of our projections mm. and empty of intrinsic existence? That is our projection, intrinsic yeah, right. existence. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That is what the projection we make on nearly everything. And please, please, again, don't hear this as theoretical. It's just what's going on in every moment. The moment I try to establish what something is. You know, to put pigeonhole it, just to use a common phrase. You know, how many people have ever come up to you and say, you're this sort of person, aren't you? You ever heard that done to you? <laughs> yeah, you're calm, or you are get agitated by things like this. That's exactly that. It's projecting some form of intrinsic existence onto you. Yeah, and we probably do it to others, even if we don't do it consciously. We, probably do, we, we are doing it, I wouldn't say probably. We are doing it unconsciously all the time. Saying, you know, when you look at somebody... Does the mind have to make out mm, that sort of person? <laughs> they look really miserable. They must be really miserable. <laughs> so these, these are really little things. I mean, this is how we perceive them, actually, in the ordinary, ordinary life. Now, why it's a middle way, just to finish off with my last question. Why it's a middle way is because it's not saying that something is annihilated. Because by taking out intrinsic existence, I'm not annihilating the world and the phenomena of it. I'm just leaving it exactly the way it is, but now absent, you know, with the absence of intrinsic existence. And it's also not saying it's eternal either. I'm just curious about, you know, I've heard descriptions of nirvana by Burmese teachers mm -hmm. as empty of um, all the aggregates. Yep. How does that fit in with this? That's, again, a particular viewpoint. You know, and some say, you know, the Burmese tradition in particular, say the aggregates all, in a sense, come to a standstill with the nibbana experience. Yes, that's what I've heard. Yeah. Now, what I think it actually really, the way I hear it and the way I think it ought to be translated, is the defiled aggregates come to a cessation. Okay, that's what you're saying. Yeah. With nibbana. Not that there's nothing there, because otherwise, you know, the person, you know, their form doesn't go. The, the Buddha didn't pop out for and go, blip, like that. You know, reached awakening and sort of go, blip. Because they say that arahants still contemplate the aggregates as yes. a useful contemplation. That's right, yeah. So would that be more about paranibbana then, perhaps? Well, par par yeah, paranibbana is nibbana-ing in life and nibbana-ing in death. Nibbana-ing in life is the nibbana, you know, nibbana-ing. Paranibbana-ing is absolutely zilch said about it. <laughs> absolutely nothing said about it at all. 
you know, that's that when Buddha gets asked the question, does the Buddha continue to exist after death or not? Uh, he remains stoically silent about all this. It's, you know, it's just speculation. You know, but you can nirvana in life. And that's what the whole point about is. Of course, at death, then the rupa kanda will disappear. You know, there is no rupa kanda. And so presumably all the other arikarukats will fall apart as well mm. at death. But not during par- uh, and the barnering in life. <coughs> yes. um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.